We are in 1 Samuel. Maybe get to the end of chapter 14 today. Not that we're in any hurry. Last week, we were talking about the star or the villain, depending on your perspective of the story, as we have for many, many weeks now, pertaining to the newly appointed, relatively speaking, King Saul, first time ever over God's people. And last week, Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's son, unbeknownst to anybody else, especially the king, he and his armor bearer went out to engage the Philistines, either totally crazy or totally supernatural. And we know by the outcome which it was. Picking up in chapter 14, beginning in verse 16, Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, referring to the Philistines and the big crowd that was gathered in the army and all of that. And they went here and they went there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who's gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Saul's valets report that there was something big going on in the Philistine camp which shakes Saul out of his lethargy. You may remember last week I told you how the scriptures mentioned that he was lying under a pomegranate tree and the significance of all of that in the context of the day. He's confused because there was no obvious reason for the Philistines to be panicking, much less dispersing. And so he orders a roll call of the camp and he finds out that the only people who are missing are Jonathan and his armor bearer. Verse 19, then Saul said to Ahiah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and it even increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Ahiah, who we met last week, was the priest working at this particular time. And he's already engaged in performing the ritual ceremony prior to the battle to inquire of the Lord to receive the Lord's blessing as well as the Lord's counsel and wisdom concerning all the commotion that was taking place in the Philistine camp. And Saul, whose strong point as we have seen has never been patience, can't wait for the ceremony that Ahiah the priest was performing for those important reasons, he can't wait for it to be over. There's too great of an opportunity developing here to squander. Withdraw your hands, which means stop what you're doing. And almost unbelievably, Saul tells him to wrap things up, whether we're done or not. And they weren't. Saul is thinking, we've got a battle to get to while the pickings are good. We've got to strike while the iron's hot. We don't have time for these ritual ceremonies of blessing and inquiring of God's wisdom. The heck with it all. The heck with the favor of the Lord. The obvious common sense circumstances are ripe for success. Oh, this doesn't bode well for Saul. Again. No, Saul, we want to say, no, Saul, don't keep compounding your problems. 
Remember what happened when you took matters into your own hands and your own reason and you decided that Samuel, even though he told you when he was going to be back, wasn't back in time according to your time frame, even though Samuel was in fact back in time. And so he takes the all-important pre-battle ceremonies into his own hands. Now, let's be fair. I oftentimes refer to the view from the cheap seats which is what we have when we are viewing, you know, history that's written out for us and seeing everything encapsulated. We get to see all of Saul's mistakes and his consequences and his sins, and we shake our heads, understandably, but honestly, all too readily. Because every one of us does what I just talked about, almost as a matter of course. We run along the stretch of life and we know, we know up here that we are utterly dependent upon the grace and the wisdom and the timing and the guidance of God Almighty. And yet, all too frequently, we either race ahead of him or we sit down behind him or we veer slightly or not so lightly to the right or to the left. And then we wonder why it comes crashing down, or at least why it doesn't go the way that we had it hoped. Last week, we saw Saul preclude the all-important wisdom of God, as I mentioned, by jumping the gun regarding the offerings that Samuel was wanting to offer up and needed to offer up. That was his appointed role. And Saul's indiscretion, as we might say today, no, Saul's sin was not listening to the voice of God to wait for Samuel as delivered through Samuel. And it cost Saul his kingdom. So he knows there's something big going on. And his first reaction is to seek the guidance of God. And we cheer Saul's decision. Saul, woo, baby, yes, go to prayer. You are growing, my man. Let's get God's advice in what to do in this not only extraordinary situation, but but baffling situation. You don't understand why, why this is even happening. But in all of the excitement, being engulfed by the developing, increasing flow of excitement and the accompanying uncertainty and the confusion, he says again to Ahiah the priest, Stop! We don't have time for this. Whatever is going on is rapidly evolving, even though I'm not sure what the situation even is. But it looks like an opportunity which I don't want to miss. So let's dispense with the counsel of God and secure the victory over our enemies. Now, yes, this is ancient history. But it's filled with contemporary application. How does a follower of Jesus not get distracted from the big picture? How does the follower of Jesus not get swayed by circumstances? How do we not get sucked into the current and the flow of momentum, which in the situation may seem ever so appealing? What just happened? How did we get here? You ever find yourself saying that? It's like, what? I, wow, that escalated. What? I'm not, huh? Enter Barbara. 
and Bill Cripe. Newlyweds. 1972, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Ripe for the pickings of any insurance salesman, any other kind of salesman. We're in a military town. We're half-wits. We're newlyweds. We know nothing, which is pretty true. Have I got a deal for you? Remember Guy Smiley, right, from Sesame Street? Guy Smiley. I've got some encyclopedias for you. Oh, yes. This was the day when they would go door to door peddling such things. And I'm like, encyclopedias, dude, you've got to be out of your mind. Oh, but wait, I am going to give you a complete set. And I don't remember if they were World Book or Britannica, but I mean, they were a big name. And we're going to give you a complete set for free. And I'm like, okay, I may be stupid and naive and young, but I'm not that stupid, young, and naive. Want to bet? Have you repressed this? Or you, I know you remember this. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he said, well, there is one catch. Ah, I know it. After you've had these wonderful founts of knowledge, you will just have to write your impressions of them. Send us a little note about how much you're enjoying them and how valuable they are to you. That's it. That's it. Well, now, think of what your children could do. I know. our chi- Wait a minute. We don't have any children. Oh, but you may. Yeah, whatever. So, okay, where do I sign? You idiot. Sign the dotted line. Oh, there is another little catch. All you have to buy. Wait, wait, wait. Time out. You just have to buy the annual, which is the once a year update. It's a book that goes right with the encyclopedias that kind of is the latest breaking and corrections if there are any and all that sort of thing. All you have to do is buy the annual for the next 8,643 years at $10 Per annual. So I was like, well, you know, $10. Okay. Yeah, you know, hey, I'm still, it's like, yeah, good. We're good to go. And the whole time, even as a young Christian, I'm just inside going, something's just stinky here. And so we get the contract and everything else. And after thinking about it, I'm adding up how many annuals we are now required to buy. And suddenly, you know, how did we get here? This free set of encyclopedias were going to cost us $450. Absolutely free. Yeah. Actually, it worked out okay, though, because in the state of Kentucky, they had a law that said you have 72 hours to back out of any kind of deal like that. And we did. Oh, the momentum, though, the excitement, the possibility, the, you know, the half-truths, and you get caught right in it. The current sometimes is just far too strong. What are some other examples of currents, of flows, which carry us into such bad decisions like Saul was facing, only to an nth degree comparing to the things we do? Well, I'm going to give you four things, This is or five things. This is certainly not exhaustive by any means. These are just kind of things that came to my mind pretty quickly, and they're very broad. Number one is the rule of all the others. 
meaning all the others I know who have done this, it's worked out great. So let's do it. Go. Boom. Number two, the rule of lust. And I'm referring to the lust of the eyes. You know that expression that, hey, it doesn't cost anything just to go looking, just to go shopping. Maybe. Guys, you ever go onto a car lot? Just looking! Honey, don't worry. And next thing you know, you're the proud new owner of a new vehicle. And you're going, how did I get here? Beware. Number three, the rule of the deadline. And by that, it can be a real deadline or just a perceived deadline. Well, you know, we have three other buyers interested in this house right now. Oh, man. Yeah, we don't want to let this thing get away. Or, you know, the sale does expire today, coincidentally. (laughs) Number four, the rule of disregard for trusted advice. Hey, look, I'm not an idiot. You know, I've been around the block a few times. I got this. And finally, five, and again, not finally, but just by way of examples, the rule of ignoring that still, small voice. Ah, boy, I, I don't know. I, I, you know what? I mean, it, it totally makes sense. It really is a good deal. We've actually, we've even been planning on this. So this wasn't like an impetuous buyer or whatever. It's just, it's nothing like that. But you know what? I just have this nagging sense that we shouldn't do it, at least not at this time. When you get that, and especially when your spouse is with you in that, don't ignore it. Or you'll be saying, How did we get here? Saul is a man of action when he wants to be. And it seems like the obvious flow of the situation makes it an opportune time for action. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword of the Philistines was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously and who went up with, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. The Philistines have turned now in battle. They're going out to fight their enemy and they're turning and they're whacking up each other. And then they also had had deserters, if you will, of Israel in the previous days and previous battles gone by who they would hire and pay. They're called mercenaries. There were Israelites who were fighting for pay for the, for the uh, Philistines. And they go, whoa, we know who's the winning side here. Let's go. And there were those who were just panicked and ran in fear and were hiding in caves and whatnot. And they also came out of hiding to join The winning side. Everybody loves a winner. The conclusion of this pericope, 
says it all. Verse 23. The Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beit Aven. Once again, that big, handsome, people's choice tall king issues another ill-conceived edict by crazily placing a curse on anyone who eats that day. And you say, wait, why would he do that? Well, that was a thing that, that they, they would do that in the Old Testament on special situations. It was basically kind of a fast kind of offering to the Lord in honor or celebration or whatever. But this one was totally ill-contrived. And like Saul, it was just an action to be taken in the moment. Verse 24, you see, informs us that the troops were famished. It's not easy to go out into hand-to-hand combat, even with garden tools. And remember Jonathan and his armor bearer. They're not with the rest of the army, though, so, so they had no idea about this new law that the Saul's, Jonathan's father, had put into place. And we are helped putting together that Saul probably was trying to act all spiritual, Because in verse 35, it implies that Saul was not a pious man. He was not the most devoted when it comes to the rituals and the ceremonies and everything else of Judaism. He was not the most uh, ardent of that sort. And you see in that verse saying that this is the first altar that Saul had built since being king is telling us, that, yeah, something's a little off about Saul and his devotion and his orthopraxy, the outworking of what he believes. Because, you see, the kings, as a matter of course, had all kinds of opportunities and took the opportunities to set up various altars for various things, for various seasons, various signs, various... All, all, that was just part and parcel of what they did. And so now Saul has been king for some time, and yet this is the first time he's ever done this. So again, Jonathan, not knowing about the curse, he happens to be walking along with his armor bearer, detached from the army, and he sees a honeycomb, and he eats it unknowingly, inviting the death penalty on himself. You say, wait, the penalty for violating the fast is death? Yep. (laughs) When When the king makes edicts and puts down laws, it's a serious thing. So when Jonathan is formed of his father's curse, his reply is that his father, in verse 29, had troubled the land. That's at least one interpretation in the NAS of the Hebrew. A better rendering there is that Saul, the king, had acted foolishly. And as I have defined in previous weeks, that's not like a very flippant kind of slam as we would call it today. That was a very serious flagrant insult. And the point to all that is that Jonathan was and is in step with God and Saul was and is not. Verse 30. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ayalon. And the people were very, 
very weary. The people rushed greedily. They were so weary and starving upon the spoil from the enemy. And they took sheep and oxen. I'm putting some editorial comments in there to make it make better sense. And oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Oh, that's a no-no in Judaism. But you see what was going on here is the troops are bonking. I don't know if you know that term. If you are an athlete, you know what bonking is. If you're a marathoner, it's called hitting the wall. If you're a cyclist, it's called bonking. Hence the pictures. And I just read an article like three weeks ago about if you as a cyclist have not bonked yet, you will. I'm like, oh, well, it's not, I don't know, it doesn't sound too cool, no, but whatever. You can push through anything, right? That's what I learned in the airborne. <laughs> So I went out and I was over two hours on my ride, which is really for the average person is uh, about the most that you're going to get out of your glycogen stores. Your what? Is that by the Dollar General store? No. <laughs> glycogen is a form of, of energy, sugar, glue that's stored in your body for immediate release, for immediate need. And through vigorous exercise that is prolonged without taking any immediate kinds of sugar into your system, your body absolutely just the tank runs out. And unless and until I had experienced it just a couple weeks ago, I would never have realized how profound it is. I was just doing my cool down. And there's a little segment only three-tenths of a mile long right by our house but it's a 7% grade for three-tenths of a mile. And I'm all warmed up, obviously, after two hours of stretching. I'm like, I'm going to try this. Because I always started at first. And so I hit this segment, man, and I'm on it. And I get about five pedal strokes in it. And I felt like I was going up a 90-degree wall. And I'm sitting there, and my body is doing weird things. And I'm getting dizzy. And I'm like, I got nothing left. But I'm looking at the finish line, which is like from here to the sound table. And that fast, there was nothing. And I immediately, I was on the slope. I just turned the bike before I fell over to go down the slope. And I said, dude, you just bonked. I was kind of excited about it. I'm a real cyclist now. (laughs) The troops bonked you take a matic which i was doing yesterday in our yard and you start trying to use that in hand-to-hand combat man you're out there for who knows how long it's it's not easy and so they are somewhat irrational which is another byproduct of bonking and so they see all this potential meat and food and everything and they grab it and the heck with the rituals of not eating meat with the blood in it and they start pigging out And so Saul, to his credit, is going to help things by making that altar so that the food can be cooked properly and they won't be violating the rituals of Judaism. On the priest's insistence, verse 36, Saul inquires of the Lord concerning his plan to attack the Philistines. Now that the enemy is in a panic. But the Lord isn't answering. Now the Lord isn't answering his inquiries for guidance. And Saul knows that something is wrong. 
So he concludes that the problem is either with himself or it's with Jonathan. And so through the process that's mysterious still to me in the Old Testament called the casting of lots, it ends up ultimately calling out Jonathan for having violated the curse that Saul had placed about nobody eating anything. In verse 43, Saul says to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? And so Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff, which was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Now, I'm reading it that way on purpose because that has a whole different meaning which scholars disagree on how actually Jonathan would have intoned this. Meaning, was he, which would have been understandable, being a man of honor as he is, and this was the way the law was so stern in the Old Testament, for him to stand there and say, I didn't know, I ate, I violated the edict, I deserve to die. But more scholars, based on the context and what Jonathan has already said about his dear father, they believe that he was being sarcastic. Meaning, okay, right, sorry, I was starving and I put my spear or my staff into some honey and I ate. Shoot me. You have to decide what you think it is. Either way, Saul is in another precarious place. He realizes that his credibility as king rides on his enforcing the death penalty pronounced on anyone who violates the prohibition that he placed on eating anything, even if it is a really stupid law that he made in the first place. And now in a rare act of defiance against their king, the troops aren't with him. And they say, must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it, old kingy. And the people swear an oath by virtue of the intensity of what is recorded in the text, saying, as the Lord lives. It's like meaning as God is my witness. This is not going to happen. Not one hair of Jonathan's head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day, implying yet again that Jonathan is the obedient one. He's the holy one. He's the one in step with the Lord of heaven and earth. And you, our good-looking, tall, strong king, are not. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. So Jonathan is spared. But now what? Well, all the while Saul has been preoccupied with his mindless edict about fasting, the Philistines, whom the Lord gave into their hands with the view of total annihilation, they were now sauntering off out of harm's way to live to fight another day. And because, again, of Saul's poor leadership, they would continue to be the thorn in the side of God's people for years to come. Remembering that Saul's kingdom had been removed from him by the Lord, that was back in chapter 13 when it's first announced. Verses 47 and 48 now in chapter 14 are basically uh, kind of a summation or a recap, if you will, of Saul's tenure as king. 
Now, when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the sons of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly, and he defeated the Amalekites, and he delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. All in all, that kind of summation or recap seems pretty darn positive. Seems like Saul was getting pretty good reviews on Yelp. Maybe even occasional four-star rating on Yelp. Some of you are going, what? Ask a five-year-old what Yelp is. The Lord, do many of you not know what Yelp is? Hands who know what Yelp is? Oh my. Okay. It's a review site that is wildly popular. You can review restaurants you've been to and this and that. And restaurants go and look at it because you get a bad Yelp rating. Eh. Okay? Anyway, the things you learn here, you see? In spite of the past days, the Lord used Saul because of who the Lord is. And yet, because of who Saul was, the Lord didn't use him to the extent that he would have liked to. Verse 52, the first part. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And I would add, and many others after Saul. Saul in Israel, the handwriting was on the wall. By the way, do you know where that expression comes from? Let me, see, let me see your hand. Do you know where that expression comes from? Oh, the writing, handwriting's on the wall. Oh, it's good. I'm glad I brought it up. That's, that's right out of the Bible. That's from Daniel. And King Belshazzar, you know, and he's messing up and what he does. And, and mysteriously, magically, he sees the, just this hand appearing and writing, many, many tekel, tekel you farsen, which means you've been weighed in the scales and been found wanting. That's where the handwriting on the wall goes. See, look what you're going away with today. You know what Yelp is, and you know where a common cliche in our culture is from. My goodness, it just blows my mind. The all-important things have not changed today. The details have changed for sure. The cultural milieu in which we live have changed. The trappings certainly have changed in a way. But the overriding principles for peace and success and joy and prosperity in life have not changed. Where God reigns as the king of one's being, there is benefit. Not a skip in the park. Not dancing with unicorns on rainbows. But you have the supernatural empowerment of a supernatural God who knows, and the rest then is up to him. There is still great benefit in walking and growing in obedience to the living God. But we never want to lose sight of one of the promises that carries through the Old Testament and right into the New Testament. We find it in 1 Samuel 12, 22, in many other places way before that and after it even. But in 1 Samuel 12, 22, we read, For the Lord will not abandon his people 
not because of them, but on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Now we go up into the New Testament, into the church age, if you will, into the age of grace. And we find, though, in different wording, in a different culture, different context, we find, though, the exact same principle. You know it very well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that even isn't of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not on account of us. It is on account of his great name and who he is and who he has declared us to be in the beloved. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. He's talking to every one of us. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and we were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ because of his great name. Old Testament, New Testament, just as viable today as ever. But you see the presumption of all of this is that you are, in fact, his people. The Bible does not teach universalism. We're all God's children in the sense that he is creator. Yes, we are. In the sense of his being our heavenly father, yes, we are. But in the sense of our being part of the family with him in eternity, no. So don't rest as the Jews did on their laurels of having the law and the commandments and being declared God's special people. They too had to receive Adonai and live for him by faith every much as we did have to today. And they were saved by looking forward by faith to the coming Redeemer who would take care of all of their failings just like he takes care of all of our failings today if he is our Lord and Savior. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, some heavy weighty theologies, I've probably made it more confusing than it is, but I trust in your spirit, O God, to take my ramblings and put them in the hearts and minds and the souls of the great people at faith with your clarity and your faith granted. Thank you for knowing who we are in every place and still wanting to be our great God and Savior. To you, O Lord, be all the glory and honor now and forevermore. Amen.